verses 30 and 31. And the word of God says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let me pray. Father, I ask that in these moments, there would be a sense of your Holy Spirit, maybe like we've never experienced before. I ask for a greater awareness of you than even ourselves. I ask for the freedom from distraction. I ask for the grace and gift of being able to focus and understand. I ask God that, as one pastor said, I would preach as never to preach again, as a dying man to dying people. Father, that's what's at stake in these moments. Your precious word, given to us in this moment of time, never guaranteed our next breath. But as we sit here, you promise to do something great. And so give us ears to hear. Make us humble to receive. Give us the strength to surrender and let you do great things in and through us. We pray this. Because there is this sense and confidence that if you overcame the grave, then you can do anything. And so make that a reality in our hearts, a confidence in you that you are the great overcomer. And so we need you. Come and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So my sister was in town last week from San Francisco. I hadn't seen her in two plus years. And as I was with my sister, we sat around the dinner table and my kids really wanted to hear some stories about their dad that would help see how uh, bad of a brother he was. So, you know, this was like you could hear the bus kind of backing up over me and then back and forth several times And my sister just began to lay out story after story. Some stories, my wife and I have been married for 18 years, almost 19, and it's like, I didn't even know that happened. And so it was was a great moment, good for my humility, and um, it was fun. So we're moving right past it. But then one of the stories she told was this. She said that my parents instructed me that I should not go into my sister's room because... um, Against uh, popular opinion, I was not kind to my sister. So I would go in there and I would bother her and I would get on her nerves. And so they said, don't go in her room. So I obeyed. I went right to the edge and stood right there and I just let her have it. But I was not in her room. She would say, get out of here. And I'm like, I'm not in your room. I'm not in your room, you know. And so then, of course, I was obeying the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. And my parents laid the hammer down on me and said, stop it, you know, and they instructed me and loved me. But what was interesting is no matter how I tried to work around the rules, 
my parents' will always was stronger. They always overcame. There was this sense that the consequences that they would dish out became unpleasant so that then I would say, okay, I will do what you ask me to do. Their will overcame mine in so many ways. What does it mean for something to overcome something? Well, in that situation, it means my parents won. It means that their way was accomplished. I don't know if you watched the uh, final four games last night, but there was little doubt on who overcame in those moments. It was Villanova and the Tar Heels. Any Tar Heel fans out here that are excited? Yeah, that's right. Silence from the Wolfpack fans. So, um, Anyway, we can love one another. That's the power of God. So um, they overcame because they just slaughtered these other teams, and that was really clear. I was a music major in college, and when you, one of the degrees that I sought as I was changing my major six times my freshman year, but as I ended up in um, my music major, you had to do a lot with uh, instrumentation and singing and things like that, and you would begin to see when a voice would become more prominent and it would just drown out the rest, or that instrument would become so prominent, it would drown out the rest. It was overcoming everything around it. What does it mean to overcome? It means that something had its way. Something gave way to a winner. And as we look at this passage, Jesus wants us to really see how his life overcomes some of the core pains and struggles of the human heart. He overcame death, and he shows up to multiple people. And as his resurrected life appears before these multiple people, you begin to see how his life overcomes three things. I want you to look at these three. Jesus' life overcomes, one, confusion and isolation, two, overcomes fear, and three, overcomes doubt. These stories illustrate the power of Jesus' resurrected life to always prevail. Doesn't mean there won't be a struggle. We live in the struggle, right? But the resurrected life says his life will, is, has, whatever verb tense you want to use, Jesus' life overcomes. Overcomes confusion and isolation, overcomes fear, and overcomes doubt. So we're praying right now that Jesus would meet us in our confusion, doubt, and he would heal us from his word. So let's look at number one. Jesus' life overcomes confusion and isolation. Let's begin in chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, this is Sunday, and this is what's so remarkable. For hundreds and thousands of years, the Jewish people celebrated, worshipped God on a Saturday. But from this moment forward, in the rest of history, those who loved the God of the Bible started worshipping and celebrating him on a Sunday. Why would that massive shift happen overnight? It was because what happened on that Sunday morning. Now, on that first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Now, we find in other gospel accounts she did not come by herself. 
she came with others, which is why it says in verse 2, we do not know where they have laid him. She includes a, a plural form of a pronoun, we. She had three pe- or two other people with her, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome, and they come to the tomb early in the morning. It says in verse 1, they came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Why were they coming? Well, because Jesus was crucified on a Saturday. It was the Sabbath, and there were certain things that had to be completed on that day. They weren't able to kind of follow. Well, he was crucified on a Friday, and they had to do it before the Sabbath day because that day was holy to the Jewish people. And so they weren't able to prepare the body for burial. So now... These women are going on this Sunday morning to prepare this body for burial with spices. And it says in the Gospel of Matthew that an earthquake comes, the stone is moved away, an angel sits on the stone, and as Mary and the women show up, that's what they behold. Stone rolled that was once sealed, an angel sitting there saying, he's not here, he's risen Now go and tell Peter and the other disciples. And so she's astounded. They all are astounded, and they run back to Peter and John, which is what we read in verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And this is where John talks of himself without saying his name. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. And now what you begin to see is Mary's confusion. She sees an empty tomb. An angel says, the Lord is not here. Now run and tell them. And her communication to them is, I don't know where his body's been taken. I don't know what's happened. There's this air of confusion And yet she's just wanting to be faithful to do what this angel had said. And so now Peter and John run. And John makes that comment that he outran Peter. I'm faster, just letting you know. And he's saying that probably because he's expressing his eagerness, that he is eager to see, because ultimately what he's wanting to prove by this story is that he's an eyewitness and that you can trust his words that are recorded here. So that's just one more evidence he's trying to explain he was eager and can be trusted. So now they show up. Peter and John look in. Peter goes on in, then John follows. They see his grave clothes wrapped up there and the head cloth folded. By the way, that's not what thieves would do, right? Those who are stealing a body, they would not fold a cloth. They would take and run. So it just begins to show with this folded cloth that something else has happened rather than someone stealing the body, which is what some were reporting in that day. And now, Peter and John, they go off and they are astounded. And they begin to remember and believe the words that Jesus had given them that he was going to rise. But Mary, he came, she came back with them, came back with Peter and John when they ran. And this is what dives us into verse 11. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She was extremely sad. Why was she sad? She wept and she stooped and she looked inside the tomb. And then something miraculous happened. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken my Lord 
and I do not know where they have laid him. She's confused. She's weeping because she doesn't understand what's going on. I don't know where his body is. This I don't know phrase is really helpful to describe where Mary is in this moment. She finds herself not understanding what's going on. And have you been there? Have you been confused before? You can hear Mary's internal dialogue saying something like, I just don't understand how this could be. I saw the stone rolled. I saw it sealed. I've met now three angels. I'm a little kind of blown away. I don't understand. But you've asked these questions. I don't understand how this could be. I don't understand how these circumstances have happened around me. Many times our greatest sadness and pain is not only that something is happening, but that we don't know what's coming. Confusion says these two things. I don't know what is happening or I don't know when it is happening or both. And it leads the heart many times sad, sometimes angry. But there's this sense of confusion. The sense of confusion that Mary doesn't understand what is going on. And friends, it's this It's this bit of confusion where Jesus comes and meets her, meets her in this very moment and gives her exactly what she needs in this moment. And what she needed was not to know everything. What she needed was to see Jesus. Look at the passage. Having said this, she turned around And she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus, more than likely because it was still fairly dark because she went really early in the morning and because Jesus has a resurrected body. He looks a little different than he did when he was on the cross, bloody and crucified. So Jesus said to her, but remember, she didn't know it. Verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, And here's the phrase again. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. She's confused. And Jesus says to her just one phrase. One phrase. Mary. And all of a sudden, her eyes are open. And she is blown away. And she says in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher. And the passage goes on to say, Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me. Another account in Mark says that the women were there, not just Mary Magdalene, and they fell at Jesus' feet, clung to him, and worshiped, which is appropriate, right? I haven't seen you. All of a sudden, you're alive in front of me, and I'm holding on to you, and he says, don't cling to me. Why? Because Jesus has already said his main purpose is to go to the Father. His main purpose is to ascend to the Father's right hand so that then he would give what they really need, the continuing presence of the Holy Spirit. So he's not not liking the worship. He's enjoying that, and that's right, but he needs to give them this clear message. And this is what he says. Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
And Mary went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What did Mary need in her confusion? I don't know is used here twice. One, in verse 13, I do not know where they have laid him. And two, verse 14, the description of her, but she did not know that it was Jesus. There is this sense of confusion surrounding her. What did she need in that moment? She needed not all the information. She needed to see Jesus. She needed to see him. Have you ever craved information and just wanted information? I just, if I knew this, I would be at peace. If I had this information, I would be okay. My wife and I joke all the time. I hear her say this, that if I knew my life would look like it does right now, I'm not sure I would have signed up to marry you. (laughs) Now, that's not a statement of me. At least I'm going to take it not as a statement of me. No, it's not. It's a sense of, if you were to tell me I would marry a pastor, And then we would plant a church, and then we would have not one kid, but four kids, two of which we would go halfway around the globe to get from Ethiopia, and then we would go through both personal struggle, we would have marital strife, we would have child-rearing strife. If you were to just lay that movie out, who's going to sign up for that one? Somebody is not quite right in the head, you know? It's this sense of if we knew everything we were getting into, we would be overwhelmed. We would be crushed. My wife and I did not need to know the whole story. What we needed was to see Jesus. In that moment of confusion, the solace for Mary was that Jesus was alive. And if he is alive, then his words can be trusted. He did not tell her, well, here's where I've been. Here's what's happened. Let me just explain. He just said, Mary. That's all she got. She falls down on her face and worships, and he says, go and tell. And he does it, and she does it. That's all she needed. In the moment of confusion, we do not need all the information. What we need is to know that the risen Christ is trustworthy. And his resurrection proves it. That's the effect of the resurrected life on Mary, that you can take him at his word. And therefore, you don't need to know what is coming down the pike all the time. You can trust him. He's good. And you don't need to know the when all the time. Jesus knows the when. Do you see? He came to her. She's weeping. He shows up on the scene. He knows not only what she needs, but he knows when she needs it, and he knows the portions that she needs it in. Oh, friend, you who are sad, you who are really struggling because you do not know what is coming, you really wish you knew the when of your greatest struggle. The resurrected Jesus wants you to know this very fact. He is alive, and therefore you can trust him. And that's what you need. What you need is you need to not physically see. You need to spiritually see him in his word, and that's enough.
that's enough. And that's why one of the most precious passages in all of the Bible, one of the most common ones, all of a sudden we pray, I pray, comes a little more 3D to us. And it's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the battle. Trust him. He's saying, I'm alive, I'm trustworthy. Now trust me with all of your heart. And say this next phrase with me. And lean not on your own understanding. The confused person is many times sad, not only by the circumstances, but many times just by the fact that they don't know everything. And this passage says, you don't need to know everything. Lean not on you having everything known. Lean on Jesus. Trust in him with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Don't let any corner of your life be off limits. Give it all to him. Surrender all to him. And you can trust him because he's alive that he will make straight your paths. He'll lay them down. Our greatest need in confusion is not to know but to see Jesus. Not to know the facts, but to see the resurrected Christ. And we will do that in his word. So Jesus' life overcomes confusion. And I also said just briefly, because this one sentence is here, it overcomes isolation. We will not be forced to handle these things alone. Because look at what he says here. Jesus says, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Why does he say that? He could have just said, I'm ascending to my Father and my God. And that would have been completely right. What's he trying to communicate to Mary in that moment? That she's part of the family. By faith in Jesus, she's pulled into the family. That Jesus' Father is now her Father. Romans 8 even says that Jesus is our brother by faith brothers and sisters, and that our, his God is our God. What does Father communicate? Communicates family, and that you are no longer alone anymore. And so his life overcomes confusion and isolation, but it also, number two, overcomes fear. Let's look at the next story. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, something's about to happen. This is the reason I mentioned that he overcomes fear is because it says here in this passage, they were afraid of the Jews. The Jewish leaders were the ones who have just killed their leader. So it makes complete sense why they would be afraid for their own lives, right? It's why they all scattered when they arrested Jesus, it's why Peter denied that he was a follower of Jesus three times. It's because if they're going to kill Jesus, then more than likely, I'm next. And so they're in a room behind locked doors, afraid of these religious leaders who's already proven their ability to kill. And Jesus comes and stands in their midst. We're not told exactly how that happens. But Jesus is the best locksmith you know. Or he just shows up in their midst. We have no idea. It doesn't explain it. But what we do know is this. 
he showed up. And when he shows up, he says, peace be with you. Why does he say that? Because the greatest need for a fearful person is peace. The resurrected Christ standing in their midst, what they needed to overcome their fear was his presence. They needed him. And so he comes and he looks at them in their fear and he says, peace be with you. And then look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side as if they're struggling to believe what's going on. Here, look, I am Jesus. Look, I am Jesus. And then, it's probably just because how I'm reading it, it feels like a massive understatement. And the disciples were glad when they saw Jesus. It's like, really? It's bursting out of their chest. Like, he's here. He's right here. It is him. Look right there. Look right here. It's him. He's here. They're elated, thrilled. And Jesus says to them again, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. And his peace is connected to this next statement. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When the disciples heard the word peace be with you, they've heard it before. Jesus taught a massive lesson on what peace in the heart means when he's on a boat in the raging sea. And how does he stop it? He says, peace, be still. It's like a movie playing before you so that when he says peace later, you know what he's after for your heart. Raging sea goes still as glass. And that's what he's saying. Now, peace, be still. Two other times has this phrase, peace, been used in the Gospel of John. One is John 14, 27. And this is crucial because of what is always connected to their peace. John 14, 27, it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled or afraid or anxious. Don't let them be afraid. And you know what he has just said in John 14? He's actually just said, I'm going to leave you so that I will send the helper. I'll send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit for John is always connected to their peace. John 16, he just began the chapter talking about the sending of the Holy Spirit, and here's how he ends the chapter. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How can you have peace in a troubled world? I've overcome the world. I will give you the Holy Spirit. That is why in verse 22 he says this of our passage today. John 20, verse 22, and he said these things, and he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It is the giving of the Holy Spirit that makes peace possible in our hearts. Now, for them here, it's not that the Holy Spirit had not been at work, but there was not this all-encompassing, all-indwelling work of the Holy Spirit that doesn't come until Pentecost. But what he does is he breathes upon them, kind of giving a foretaste of what's coming when the Spirit of God falls upon the entire church 
and the Spirit is necessary for peace, but also that you might be sent out over against your fear to be a light of love. Make sure you follow it. I'm afraid. The Holy Spirit has been given so that you might have peace so that then you might come out of yourself and be sent as an instrument of love. That's the passage. This is actually John's great commission passage. Chapter 20, verse 21. Let's hear Jesus' words again with all of that information. Peace be with you. Don't be afraid of who's out there. I'll be with you. Now, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. John's favorite designation of what God has done in his son is the sent one. If you just type it up in your phone and type the word sent and look in the Gospel of John, you'll see it everywhere. That God has sent his son. And it communicates that he was fully obedient and it communicates that he has sent him to love. Both obedience and love. And this is now he's saying Jesus is taking that role of authority and saying, as I have been sent, I'm sending you. Now obey and go out in love. And you'll never be alone. The Holy Spirit's going with you. I am with you. And you are now the sent ones. And you will be proclaiming a message of forgiveness. And this is why he says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of anyone... They are forgiven. The actual verb tense is they have been forgiven, which means I go out, I preach the good news of Jesus to someone, and if they believe, they have been forgiven. It's something that God does. The emphasis of the verb is that God is doing the heart-changing work of forgiveness. Our role is to be the one by the Holy Spirit to go out and to pronounce the message of forgiveness. And if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it has been withheld. That is, if people don't repent from that message, then they will not be forgiven. It's not doing works for God. It's trusting him alone for forgiveness. Now, let's make sure that the stage is clear. They were afraid and therefore they were behind locked doors. Jesus shows up and says, I'm alive. All my promises are gonna come true. Peace be with you. Now let's go. My question is this. What fears are in our lives that are keeping us, figuratively speaking, behind locked doors? Keeping us from taking a step of obedience to love someone else. What fears are keeping you from stepping out to do what God has asked you to do and promised to equip you to do? Could it be a fear of, I just don't know enough. And now the resurrected Christ shows up before you behind locked doors and says, but I know, I know enough. Your fear could be, but I don't know if I have the strength to love that person. And the resurrection Christ shows up behind locked doors and says, but I am love. 
Your fear could be, but I don't have the power to change anybody's life. And the resurrected Christ shows up and says, I think I have proven that there's enough power here for everyone to go around. That's the point of the resurrection. I have overcome the grave. Some might say, but I feel alone. I can't do this alone. And he stands behind locked doors and he holds your hand and he says, you are not alone anymore. I'm with you. Your fear could be, well, but what if I just don't get the credit for all this hard work? And Jesus shows up and says, you're set free from wanting credit for yourself. You're set free from that. You want God to get the glory. And that's where your greatest joy and peace are going to come from. That's where it came from for me. Fear after fear after fear. We must begin to ask ourselves, why are we worried? We can't just acknowledge that we're fearful. We must ask the why question. Why am I afraid? Because when we then apply the gospel to that, when we say Jesus is alive, then that is meant to invigorate us and send us out. We don't blame others for our inactivity anymore. We say, God, what pleases you? What do you have for me? We don't compare ourselves to others and try to live somebody else's life. We say, God, what do you have for me? As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, I'm sending you. Now go love. Obey me fully. And it's going to look different for every single life, but it will always include love and obedience. Go love. And so what he is asking is for surrender. He's asking for surrender. And when I think about this, it just helps me frame my prayers because I pray for our teenagers a lot. We have 20 plus teenagers that meet every first service uh, right over here in the, in the youth group. And I'm just praying for my own kids. I'm praying for the kids that they would not settle. That they would not settle that life is about video games and movies and what they have on that they would realize Jesus really is alive and it changes everything. You ask different questions. You ask, what can I do with my summer to make a difference for Christ? It asks questions like, who am I friends with and how can I help them spend an eternity with Jesus? You ask questions like, how can I serve my mom and my dad? How can I care for those in my family? You ask totally different questions when life is not about you, but about the risen Christ. I was reminded this week of a seven-year-old girl, a seven-year-old girl named Sydney, who was burdened in her heart that she wanted another sibling. She already had two, and she was praying she was praying that her parents would adopt. A few years later, her parents kind of came around to her idea and said, yes, we're going to adopt. And as a 10-year-old, little Sydney began to see on a screen a picture of what would be their, her sister, their daughter. And belly was bloated she just had a small crumb in her hand and didn't have much to eat. 
and little Sydney was devastated. They went to eat that next night, and she wasn't eating, but everybody else was. And her mom comes up to her and says, why aren't you eating? She says, how can we eat like kings when our little sister is out there and doesn't have anything to eat? So you know what she did at 10 years old? She decided in her own little way to write a blog to try to raise $500 was her goal in order that she could send medical supplies and food to that village where their sister was coming from. And when she did it, people poured out because people are shocked when teenagers think outside themselves. And she raised thousands of dollars. It created a nonprofit called Feeding the Orphan. Her dad ended up quitting his job and became the administrator of the nonprofit. And hundreds of children have been fed because a 10-year-old cared more about someone else than herself. I want us to know, if Jesus is alive, he's sending us all out. Singles, my heart is burdened for you because I'm afraid you've been given a false message a message that the apex of your life is marriage. It's not. The apex of your life is faithfulness to the living God. And he sends you out. And he says, as long as you have breath, you have purpose that is far greater than just marriage. And so whether you're single for five days or whether you're single for 50 years, you still have massive value and massive purpose. That's not defined by your marital status, but by whose family you're in. You're in Christ's family. He sends us out. Marrieds, those with children, he sends us out. And friends, hear me rightly. It is not now you're obedient if you only go overseas to some third world country. It's obedient for you to be sent out and love where you are. Husbands, love your wives sacrifice for them. Listen to them. You're being sent out as an instrument of love. Wives, love your husbands. Ask how to serve. Pray for them. Serving your children, be sent out. Share Christ with them. Your neighbors, that is obedience to this commission. You're sent out one. And his resurrected life overcomes not only your confusion and isolation, but it overcomes your fear. Because he gives you the Holy Spirit and promises you can have peace in the midst of your trial. And now he says at the end, he says that I, with my life, have overcome also your doubt. The last story is this. Now Thomas, verse 24, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So you get the story? The story is that when Jesus showed up in round one, Thomas wasn't there. And now they're trying to explain to Thomas what's going on. Just like anybody who's excited about something, hey, you got to believe this. But what did Thomas do? Thomas was filled with skepticism. I can't believe this. That's what he says. Look at it. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, no, 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 no. Unless I see his hands, 
unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Not going to believe it unless I see it. There's this new show out right now called Little Big Shots. I don't know if you've seen it, but it is unreal. If you were to tell me with your words that these little children could do some of the things that are being accomplished on that show, I would say, I don't believe it unless I see it. You have this one little five-year-old kid who has been playing piano for three months, and he can play anything that you ask him to play. Anything. It's unreal. I don't even see how his hands reach all the keys. I saw it with my eyes. There's this one guy, this one kid called Trickshot Titus or something like that. And this kid, I mean, we have one of these little basketball goals in our house. You know, those little tyke, all plastic basketball goals that doesn't even have a full rim. It's like a half rim and then another. And you have this little ball and you shoot into that thing. He could shoot. They lifted him up on this massive stand and he stood and he took the ball over his head and he was like, can I shoot now? Because this guy was talking, the moderator. Can I shoot now? Okay. Throws it like that. Nails nine out of 10. I mean, he's forever away. And it goes through every time. I was like, no, I don't believe it. And then I saw it. It happened. It's doubt. It's skepticism. And look at what happens. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus did the same thing, shows up in their midst, says, peace be with you. And then this is, this is remarkable to me. Jesus was not there for the previous conversation, right? The disciples were saying, hey, Thomas, Jesus is alive and you need to believe it. And he says, no, I'm not going to believe it unless I, one, see Two, touch those nail prints. And three, put my hand in his side. And Jesus addresses every one of them that wasn't there. He knows everything. Look at him, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. See my hands, put your finger here, and put your hand and place it in my side. Wasn't even there, but knew everything that Thomas wanted in order to believe. And then he says, now don't disbelieve, skeptic. Believe in me. I understand your doubts, but believe in me. Believe in me. And Thomas answered him with one of the clearest statements that Jesus is God in the entire Bible. He says with his mouth, the greatest skeptic out there, he gets a bad rap. He gets called Doubting Thomas. Let's be really clear. The other disciples, they're the ones that ran away from him, right? Okay, I think that's pretty doubt indicative. And Peter was the one who denied three times. I think that means he was doubting Peter. And now Thomas, he's doubting Thomas. It sounds like everybody was having trouble here. And Thomas answers when he sees him, my Lord and my God. My God. Lord is, I will obey you no matter what you say. And God is, I worship you as the king of the universe. That's what everyone must say in order to be 
his child. You are my Lord, and you are my God. This is what John has labored to say in this letter. He begins his whole book with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. And then in John chapter 5, the Jews pick up stones to throw it at him because they knew Jesus was claiming to be God, which was against their law that anybody, any man could claim to be God. Well, it's not against their law if he is God. And he was and is. And Thomas confirms it here with his mouth. I have seen you. You are my Lord and my God. It is beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's unbelievable. Have you had doubts? I deal with this with my children. I deal with it in my own heart. I deal with it with others. We have doubts. Let's be really honest. Sometimes we doubt if he's even real. Are we praying to the ceiling? Does he even hear? How many times have we said that? That's doubt. How many times you said, is he really powerful enough? That's doubt. Have you ever said, can he really deliver on what he says? It's doubt. And then I think this is extremely common. Is there really life after death? Is that really our home? Or is this it? How can I know? Jesus shows up and says, I'm alive. Hundreds of witnesses see him. That's how you know. Am I real? He says, touch me. Touch me. I'll eat fish in front of you. I'm as real as real gets. I'm real. You bring your doubt to him and you say, are you powerful enough? And he stands resurrected and say, I have broken the shackles of death. I'm powerful enough. Your doubt says, can he really deliver on what he says? That's the point of the resurrection. He keeps all of his promises. Every word of his can be trusted. Is there really life after death? He's like, that's what it means that I'm here. I'm alive. After I died, there is. I'm the first deposit, the firstborn, the guarantee that all the promises that I give you will come true. You can trust me. He overcomes our confusion. He overcomes our fears. He overcomes our doubts. And he says, it's worth it. Surrender your life to me. And then he finishes in verse 29. Look at this. Jesus said to him, and this is interesting. Have you believed because you have seen me? He's now teaching Thomas. Did you just believe because you saw me with your eyes? And Thomas is like, yeah, uh uh-huh. I saw you. Yep, that's why I believed. And then he says, but blessed, happy, satisfied is, are those who have not seen me and yet believe. What is crucial to the Christian walk is to be convinced that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 is true. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's what it means to be a Christian. We walk by faith and not by sight. And this is exactly what Jesus pressed upon the skeptics in John 5. I want you to listen. This is crucial. 
The skeptics in John 5 were the religious leaders, and they said, how do I know you're who you say you are, Jesus? I don't know that I can believe you. And here's what he says. John 5, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He begins to expose. You're only after yourself. You're wanting glory for you, and that's clouding your vision. It's clouding your faith. And he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who already accuses you. Who is it? And this is weird. Moses. Why does he throw Moses there? Well, because you as religious leaders who know your Old Testament, you've set your hope on Moses. And then he says this, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. But if you do not believe Moses's what? Writings, scripture, how will you believe my words at all? Do you see the connection? What did they need more than seeing Jesus? They needed the word to expose Jesus to them. The word is enough. That's what he's saying to Peter. I mean, to Thomas. He's saying, did you just believe because you saw me? You could have believed because you read about me. And this is why he goes where he goes in the verses that we read at the beginning. Now, Jesus did many other signs, which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who's been foretold, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. Believing through the word. That's where it comes. It comes alive. Fear is pushed out. Confusion is dissipated. Hope is built. Through the word. That's why we've been memorizing Psalm 19 this month. Many people have been striving to do that. What does it say? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You think that's helpful to the fearful person? I think so. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Think that's helpful to the confused person? His word will make you wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Are you afraid? His word will rejoice your heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightens the eyes. Oh, confused person, you need your eyes enlightened. His word will do it. It goes on to say, more to be desired are God's word words than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The doubting person, take your doubts to God. Live it out and watch how his word warns you and keeps you away from devastating things and rewards those who keep his word. John's main passion in presenting to us the resurrected Christ is that you would see you have everything that you need to see the resurrected Christ, and to watch his life overcome your confusion and isolation, your fear, and your doubt. Charles Spurgeon says this, and we'll close. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. 
Yes, that was the day before iPads and the phones. But the image still doesn't get lost on us. The Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Because it is God's word that gives us faith. And faith clarifies confusion and grants patience, crushes fear, and blows the clouds of doubt away. Let's pray. Father, we need your word. It's in your word that you grant life. Life that has hope. Life that is sent out on mission. Life that begins to be okay with not knowing everything in the future. Life that trusts you for the right timing and trusts that you'll give us what we need when we need it. Your word gives life and faith that crushes fear so that we don't stay behind locked doors in in disobedience or refusing to love because we're afraid. But we then begin to believe that you've given us your Holy Spirit and every fearful objection has been answered in your resurrected son. And as we read your word, our doubt and our skepticism, those clouds begin to blow aside and we begin to see clearer how you can be trusted. And I ask, oh God, you would make our hearts say you are our Lord and our God. I want to worship you and follow you with all of my life. So, Father, please, make the banner over this time. Because you are alive, there's nothing that you cannot overcome. And may we give to you in these moments anything that we've been holding back. May we surrender our very selves to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.